Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller. It's December, and it's the season for warmth and comfort and sweaters and blankets and, of course, carpets to keep our feet off of those chilly floors. And today's Curious Object is, in fact, three carpets, or maybe 93, but we'll get to that, uh, which have just about the most prestigious provenance imaginable, namely the King of France. Now, these are, as you might imagine, less of the casual lounging on the floor type of carpet and more of the magnificent work of art category. Um, And they have a really fascinating story to tell us about 18th century luxury and innovation and global trade and craftsmanship. Uh, Plus, they are going to reveal to us something about the Louvre Museum that might surprise you. And I've just realized, actually to my great surprise, that in over 80 episodes of Curious Objects, we've never once devoted a full episode to rugs or carpets. Um, So this is long overdue. And boy, do I have a terrific guest to talk with us about these terrific carpets. His name is Wolf Burchard. And Wolf is curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he oversees British decorative arts. Uh, He curated the fabulous Walt Disney exhibition at the Met in 2021. Uh, He led the remarkable renovation of the British galleries there as well, and much, much more that we'll get into in just a moment. Wolf, welcome to Curious Objects. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now, I'm really looking forward to investigating these carpets with you, but we have some business to get to first. And of course, that means the dreaded rapid fire questions. Um, (laughs) But so some of these are actually going to be less rapid fire than usual because your own personal history is really fascinating and I think you know, listeners here are really going to want to hear about this. So let's start with a few quick ones, and then we'll go from there. Are you ready? I, I don't know if I'm ready, but we'll, let's give it a go. Time will tell. <laughs> okay. What, um, Wolf, what is the first object or, or work of art that you remember falling in love with? Oh, that is a difficult one. But if I, um, I, I don't want to sort of jump ahead, but um, when it comes to a sort of falling in love and a sustained crush, um, I would say that um, I, the, the Savonry carpets, which we will discuss, is certainly a sustained love that I've had now for many, many years. Fair enough. Okay, so the Metropolitan Museum is on fire, and you have time to grab just one piece. What are you going to rescue? Oh my God, those are terrible questions. Um, <laughs> let me think. You don't have much time to decide. So I don't have much quickly. time to decide. Oh my God. Um, well, I'm going to take the Paul Delamry tea caddies the Met uh, acquired um, two years ago. Fantastic. They're nice and light. I can carry them. The Savonry carpets I can't, <laughs> can't carry. <laughs> that's a good, good practical approach. And of course, uh, you know, that's a rather um, appealing answer for me, having been intimately involved with those tea caddies myself. Now, Disney has decided to do a remake of Beauty and the Beast, but instead of the French Rococo setting, they've asked you, Wolf, to pick a different period and style for the new film. What are you going to choose? Hmm. Well, Walter Crane set, uh, in his Victorian illustrations, set it in a uh, Regency-style interiors, and I thought that that his illustrations were rather appealing, so I think one should give that a go and animate those rooms. Looking forward to that one. What's uh, what's your favorite museum to visit, other than the Met, of course? Uh, I don't believe in favorites, um, I, I must admit. I'm one of five children, so um, I, um, <laughs> although my sisters would always say that my that I'm my, certainly my mother's favorite son, is I'm the only son, but at the top of my head, I'm, I must say I love the Kunstes Museum in 
Vienna, uh, which is so rich um, and uh, has such a superlative collection of old masters and decorative arts. So that certainly would be um, amongst the, the top choices. What, uh, what one book should an amateur read about 18th century French decorative arts? I would suggest not one book, but um, to get into the spirit of the 18th century, I would um, suggest people either watch or read uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization and his hmm. chapter on the pursuit of happiness, which is about um, the Rococo in Europe and uh, enlightened philosophy in North America. That's terrific. Okay, this one is a little less rapid, perhaps. Wolf, what is your personal opinion about Bauhaus? I'm, I'm not sure I would say I have an opinion about the Bauhaus, but I, um, I take a particular interest in the Bauhaus because it was founded by my uh, great-uncle, Walter Gropius, who was the, the brother of my um, great-grandmother and the uncle of my grandfather. And... Um, and my my grandfather entertained a very close relationship with his uncle, and therefore uh, saw and 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 witnessed the the um, the foundation of the Bauhaus, and met all these extraordinary professors, Kandinsky, Feininger, etc., who who worked at the Bauhaus, and they all they all stayed with my um, great grandparents in the house in um, Timmendorf in in Germany. My grandmother, who of all my grandparents was the one I got to know the best because she lived the longest. She died in 2008, uh, just a couple of months short of her 100th birthday. Uh, she, to me, was this extraordinary uh, gateway to the past. And so she had all these stories to share from the from the 1920s and 30s when she, as a very young woman, um, uh, you know, met Walter Gropius and, and, and the Bauhaus professors and, and that whole world. Um, so it's 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 um, it's something that always fascinated me because it also was you know he's so broke with with tradition. I mean he came from a from a family of of architects, um, but um, architects of a very different kind, and may you know uh, sort of with that he brought his his vision to life. So that was always quite inspiring. And particularly, what I always loved is this idea of all the arts being gathered in in one community under one roof um so um so i obviously always had um had a particular interest for the bauhaus uh, what should everyone know about nicolas alexandre salin de montfort nicolas alexandre salin de montfort was a, a french architect uh, who came from Versailles and made his career in germany after the french revolution and built uh many uh, townhouses or town palaces for the leading families of Frankfurt, all of which are now lost because the, the architecture of Frankfurt was lost in, in World War II. And, and this is the reason why you're asking me, is uh, he built a house, a townhouse for uh, for my grandmother's family. So, so, so my grandmother, whom I had mentioned earlier and who I said, you know, was this great gateway to the past, she grew up in this real gem of neoclassicism, which, which had been built by her great grandfather in um, 1804 and was designed by by Salon Montfort and um, and 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 that house was destroyed also in the war in 1944 but um, 
but my grandmother obviously could tell these extraordinary stories about about the house which um uh which had been built and decorated in in one go in the french empire style uh and the stories that she told about about the house and the visitors etc were just uh were, were were obviously fascinating to me who who grew up under very different uh, and um you know what we would probably say much more normal circumstances um and um so so to me that was that was incredibly evocative talking to my grandmother about about this house in which she grew up because it made historic architecture and interiors relatable well this is fascinating and i i mean what's interesting to me hearing you describe these two very disparate aesthetic legacies uh, from branches of your family one the sort of elegance and and luxury and refinement um that we associate with the sort of you know, 18th, 19th century historic decorative arts and architecture, and the other, the spare industrial um, uh, approach of the Bauhaus. How, how do you personally reconcile those uh, two strains of thought? I have diverse interests, like you know, so many of us, and I'm not only wedded to one particular century or a particular medium. When you're a curator or someone interested in the decorative arts, you might be interested in ceramics, as you are interested in furniture and silver, sculpture, tapestries, etc. Um, and you can see the value of different schools of thought, of different um, stylistic um, schools. And so I have no no difficulty of reconciling this. I mean, of course, the, you know, my, my grandmother made this whole story incredibly three-dimensional, and she herself, um, in the in the 19... 20s and 30s wanted to break free from the stuffy environment in which she grew up and and the Bauhaus um, or the sort of whole um, ideology or the so whole world of thinking around the Bauhaus was a wonderful stage set to, to break free from that from that stuffy world um, so they're you know they're they're both in, in my mind quite um, closely intertwined and as I said you know the, the Bauhaus I'm I'm absolutely no expert um, in either modernist architecture or modernist design, but I do take a great interest in the the philosophy of the Bauhaus and the idea of bringing the the arts together under one roof. And as, as you know, the, um, the, the manifesto of the Bauhaus, um, which Walter Gropius wrote, had the, the Gothic cathedral uh, on its cover. Uh, which again was supposed to be an illustration of bringing all the arts together under one roof, and this is something that that I was interested in when doing the Disney exhibition. Is Walt Disney's aim to identify talent and and set up his uh, studios, um, giving different people different tasks, but creating, you know, a work of art, an animated film, that you know, was made by seven, eight hundred people, but making it look as if it was designed and made by one single individual. And my um and my focus on 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 Charles Lebrun, on on whom I wrote my my PhD, the principal painter to Louis the Fourteenth, was also another artist who was interested or working in many, many different fields and trying to establish a visual language that um, you could translate from painting or pictorial or, or painted decoration to uh, the design of furniture, uh, tapestries, silver, sculpture, etc. 
Well, you've set up a really terrific segue for us into the second part, uh, where we're going to look at Lebrun and also at, of course, as these aforementioned carpets, which uh, bring together uh, all kinds of aesthetic ideas uh, under one roof. We'll be right back with Wolf Burchard and this group of extraordinary 18th century carpets. Um, first, just a reminder that you can see images of these carpets at the magazine antiques.com slash podcast. As always, I will exhort you to take a moment right now to give Curious Objects a rating and to write a review for us. Uh, just a few words about why you enjoy listening. These are a really great way to help the podcast reach new listeners. And uh, also, I just personally love to hear what you think. Uh, if you're listening on Ad Apple Podcast, it is extremely easy to do this. You just go to the Curious Objects show page and scroll down to where it says ratings and reviews, tap the write a review button. Um, meanwhile, if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can do that by email at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at objective interest. I always love to hear from you. And with that said, let's get back to Wolf Burchard. And Wolf, I want to start with some context. So let's just stipulate this. The year is 1664. Mm -hmm. We are in Paris. The king is Louis XIV, the sun king. And the Louvre is there in Paris, but it's not an art museum. What, what is it? No, the, the Louvre isn't an art museum at the time. I mean, it's filled with a pretty good art collection, and it's the headquarters of the French monarchy. So uh, 1664, Louis XIV is 26, a very young monarch, came to power uh, three years earlier, and he became king of France at the age of, of five. Um, but of course, um, his mother and Cardinal Mazarin were ruling the country on his behalf. But there is this very young, very ambitious uh, monarch who is trying to establish himself. And he has at his side a hugely intelligent and also extremely ambitious minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert. And he is going to be uh, a key figure in establishing the image of the king and of the French monarchy within France and, and abroad. And their aim, or, or Colbert's aim, is to to turn the Louvre, and this is this is no exaggeration, but he he wants it to be the principal palace of the world, and um, so he he has this great aim to to turn it into this extraordinary architectural masterpiece that um, would be an outward expression of France sitting at the center of the world. Mm. Louis is, uh, of course, famous for many things, but apparently not modesty. Not modesty, no. And uh, one thing that frustrated Colbert's vision for the Louvre is that Louis XIV himself wasn't particularly keen on the Louvre. I mean, at the time, the Louvre was uh, was a, a palim architectural palimpsest. Uh, it you know it, it started out as a medieval fortress to which. Uh, in the Renaissance, various monarchs had added uh, wings and buildings, and so it was, and it was completely engulfed by houses. Um, uh, you know the, the sort of urban landscape of Paris. So it had very little to do with what um, what we see today. There was a, a very important, huge wing, the Grand Galerie, the Long Gallery 
of the Louvre that connected the Louvre with the now lost Tuileries Palace. And um, and that building is more than 400 meters long and um, had in the ground floor and, and, and first floors the workshops and flats of scientists, of craftsmen, uh, etc. And then on the on the sort of piano nobile, it had this huge long gallery, um, which is about four times more than four times the length of the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, but mm. comparable proportions, uh, not in terms of the length, but the, the the width and the height of the ceiling with a with a coved ceiling. And um, well, and and uh, before the reign of Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Thirteenth, his father had summoned. Uh, Nicolas Poussin, great French painter, to come to Paris and decorate the the ceiling of the of the Grande Galerie, and that is a slightly ridiculous chapter in the in the history of art because Nicolas Poussin, although he was you know the greatest admired artist of his time, was absolutely not a decorator. He made small, highly intellectual canvases, and suddenly was was asked to. You know, decorate the the uh, um, the, the largest um, interior in in uh, in Paris, and so he he got started and started decoration on the theme of Hercules, to which the uh, or from which the the kings of France claimed descendants, and um, and after I think nine bays uh, out of I think forty six bays, he said, oh, um, I really ought to go home to Rome and and pick up my wife. And then he went back to Rome, and in the meantime, Louis the Thirteenth uh, and uh, Richelieu died, and so the the whole thing was given up. Much to his relief, it sounds like. Much to his relief, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah, to ask Poussin to decorate this gallery is just seems such a weird move. But um, so you know, and then Colbert came back, and they uh, came arrived, and Louis the Fourteenth arrived, and said, "Okay, we need to finish the decoration of this gallery." And um, so they decided that they were going to complete Poussin's decoration up to one half of the gallery. And then Charles Lebrun, the king's principal painter, would then do the other half, which was a great uh, opportunity for Lebrun to compare himself to the greatest admired or the, the, the most admired painter in France, Nicolas Poussin, who was his great uh, role model. And then they decided to create a... Uh, a series of carpets for that gallery. Right. And so, and uh, just before we get into the carpets, which again, I'm, uh, I'm dragging this out uh, <laughs> perhaps longer than I should uh, for the sake of our expectant listeners. But I do want to give a sense uh, as we start to talk about these carpets of just the scale of the ambition that we're describing, because y- you've just, uh, you've just given this evocative description uh, of the sort of size and and scale of the gallery uh, and some of these very important names who are involved in that production. But uh, the ambition that the the Louvre was going to be the center, uh, the the beating heart of France and by extension of the world, I mean, the political stakes here are really, really tremendous. And I I wonder if you can give us an idea just from an economic perspective. I mean, was that ambition justified or warranted 
by the economic and political situation. What what exactly was the extent of uh, of Louis' power and, and wealth in this period? Well, I think, you know, Louis XIV is famous for projecting the image of power that then ultimately results in, in power. When he, you know, when at the beginning of his reign, uh, France is in a, in a rather dire state, and um, but in creating, and this is why we, when we talk about Louis the Fourteenth, you know, people um, love using the um, the anachronistic term of propaganda. You know, they were creating together Louis the Fourteenth, Colbert, and the intelligentsia that surrounded Colbert were creating the image of this extremely powerful monarch, uh, and um, he then sets out to start his military campaign across um, parts of Europe and is very successful in, in, in doing that, certainly in the first half of the reign. So he establishes himself as the most powerful monarch in, in Europe. And what we mustn't forget is that at that moment, if you think of other European monarchs at the time, you know, the, the Holy Roman Emperor um, wasn't a particularly powerful monarch because he was... Um, you know, he may have been the emperor, but uh, his own territories were limited, and his power over other German principalities too was was limited. Um, in England, you know, there had just been um, the civil war, and then uh, Charles II, um, after being in exile in France and the Low Countries, returns to England. And he too needs to try and, and and establish himself. But there is the great question between, you know, Catholicism and Protestantism. So Louis XIV arrives on the throne at a time when um, actually the the uh, the soil is, is in his favor to establish himself as the most powerful monarch in Europe. And and what is so clever is that that he does that through the arts, through architecture. He, you know, obviously then builds Versailles and builds this whole court structure that so many of his contemporaries are then going to follow in in Germany, in in um, in England, in Spain, uh, to a different degree. Um, but it's it's really the establishment of a new form. Of, of monarchy, and that is, um, and 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 that power is established through the image that he uh, projects. Terrific, thank you. So, with that all all set out for us now, I think we can finally start to talk about these damn carpets. <laughs> um, damn so carpets! What are you saying? <laughs> so, I want to know why did carpets matter? Why why did uh, Louis and Colbert? want carpets in this gallery they could have had any sort of flooring that they wanted why why carpets that is a very very good question why carpets and i cannot emphasize enough that this is a complete a completely unique chapter in the history of art so going back we were thinking about france and colbert's keen interest in the arts and in luxury goods and France wanting to be autonomous, i.e. they didn't want to import luxury goods, they wanted to make them themselves. They wanted to have their own architects, they wanted, they didn't want to import Italian architects to build their palaces, they wanted to train their own architects to build their palaces. Um, they wanted to produce their own tapestries, they didn't want to have to, to import tapestries from Flanders. And carpets were 
um, I mean, the really sort of fine carpets were uh, made uh, in Turkey and in the Middle East, and they were shipped to France at vast expense. And Colbert set out to produce French carpets that were going to to uh, be better than uh, Oriental carpets. And um, there was a manufactory, the Savonnerie manufactory, that had been established at the beginning of the 17th century, of which the, the production was, was small but very fine. Um, but Colbert set out to professionalize that manufactory and produce carpets uh, on a much larger scale and with much more ambitious designs. And so he decided, or, he, you know, we don't know who exactly decided, but in consultation with the monarch and a group of, of intellectuals who were thinking about how can we project um, or how can we glorify the image of Louis XIV, they decided to have a series of carpets made to cover the entire floor of uh, the long gallery of the Louvre. So as I said, this gallery is more than four times the length of the Hall of Mirrors. We are, we're talking about more than 4,000 square feet of surface to be covered with carpets. And so they said, we're going to create um, what they call the king's carpet, le, le tapis du roi. Uh, and and they, it's, always, it's always listed in the inventory as one carpet, at least in the, in the 17th century. Um, but this, this one carpet was made up of 93 individual carpets. And to get a sense of the scale of these carpets, every carpet is about nine meters long and the width varies between two and a half and four meters, depending on uh, the bay in which they were supposed to be um, laid out. So it's a huge endeavor. It took 20 years to make the carpets between 1668 and 1688, by which time Louis XIV had long lost interest in the Louvre and moved to Versailles. But, um, but it is amazing that you have this absolutely extraordinary endeavor that costs an absolute fortune. It's a whole branch of industry that is created, manufacturers, um, to produce these carpets. And, um, and then they never rolled out. Um, and I think one of the reasons is, and, and we will we'll talk about these, we, we can talk about these carpets and their appearance in, in a second, is I think that they're so rich visually, they're so colorful, they're so powerful, that had um, Louis XIV, for instance, decided to roll them out, some of them, in the in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, I think Lebrun would have been rather unhappy with that because they visually would have competed with the interior that he created in the Hall of Mirrors, particularly the, the ceiling. And, and that is why they're also interested in the context of the relationship between what we call fine and what we call decorative arts and, and the competition between the two of them. Mm. Right. So let's take a step back and, and talk for a moment about this Avonrie, which you've uh, sort of favorably compared to uh, some of these uh, ideological concepts around the Bauhaus, uh, bringing people uh, together under one roof uh, with the different uh, crafts, different techniques, uh, different objectives. But the, the carpets being made here... Um, uh, as you've said, there's an effort to sort of uh, supersede the, the preeminence of oriental carpets. 
Um, but this is an incredibly difficult task. I mean, this is a very difficult craft to master. It's I mean, incredibly time consuming. The materials are expensive. The dyes are expensive. Um, this is not your sort of uh, local craftsperson on the, <laughs> the, you know, in the town square. Um, what was this manufactory doing? Who were the people who were working there? What kind of scale were they operating on? G give us a sense of just, you know, what what was it like to, to be in the Savonnerie? Uh, so originally the there were two, century? originally there were two manufacturers, um, uh, two uh, private manufacturers that were producing the carpets in the, um, uh, in the Turkish manner. And they had introduced the technique of knotting carpets to, to France um, at the beginning of the 17th century. The term savonnerie comes from the term savon, soap, uh, because the, uh, the workshop of one of those two manufacturers was in an old soap manufactory. Um, this is where the term savonnerie comes from. And the 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 moment the beginning of the 17 of the 1660s which which we mentioned is such a pivotal moment because suddenly you have the french government colbert throwing money at this endeavor at this at the production of carpet so they they're using a manufactory that already exists but it's elevated to a royal manufactory and suddenly their production becomes very very different um they they for instance get there's a there's a there's um there's a bill for huge nine meter long tree trunks that are used to produce uh, the carpets because the wider the loom if you if you um you produce the the carpets width wise you can have more people sitting at the loom mm. um, to make them what what we have to remember is that um since really the beginning of the founding of the manufactory many of the carpets were made by orphans. Um, it was seen as an opportunity uh, by, the, by the Queen of France to give these children who had no parents um, a way of, of, of making their, their living. Um, from our point of view, this, I think that the circumstances under which these carpets were made were not very happy ones. Um, but what is amazing is to think, and, the, and, and we have little documentation, is how very quickly the Savonnerie reached an incredibly high level of craftsmanship and how that training may have happened. And there we have little documentary evidence, but you can see an extraordinary jump in, in, in technique in the um, variety of dyes. And, and this is where it's really important to um to compare as many carpets with with each other, so, and that that that's the amazing thing about this incredibly ambitious commission of of these um, of these ninety three carpets for the Grand Galerie, um, because up until say sixteen sixty, seventy carpets looked quite different. They had um, they looked much more like Oriental rugs. They were uh, they were covered in in, in flowers. But didn't have any ambitious um, iconography, and then as Colbert steps in, he says, "Okay, well, we need to up the production. We need to up the, the, the scale of the carpets, but also their design. And we are going to introduce iconography to these carpets. But of course, they're, they're carpets; they're not tapestries. So you walk onto them. So the design needs to reflect that. You, it's not like uh, you don't have a sort of narrative sequence. What you, what you mm. create are carpets that 
are a celebration of the French monarchy um, through symbolism, but not through through narratives. So you have some carpets that are devoted to different Roman deities. There are some carpets that are uh, devoted to the elements. And it's really about showing France at the center of, of the universe. But to do that, you need really ambitious designs produced by Charles Lebrun. We can talk about that. But then the the ability to translate these designs um, through extremely good weavers who can translate an ambitious cartoon into a, a carpet, mm. but also a great um, or broad palette of dyes. And you can see this with the different um, the carpets made in the 1660s that's, that um, clearly the palette of dyes was broadened for or enlarged for the Grand Galerie carpet, carpets. There, there was a precursor to the Grand Galerie carpets, which were a series of 13 carpets made for the Galerie d'Apollon, which is also at the Louvre. And uh, these were on the scale of the Grand Galerie carpets, but their design wasn't quite as ambitious, pretty ambitious, but not quite as ambitious. Mm -hmm. um, studying them recently in, in person, um, we understood that they were not woven width-wise, but lengthwise, so the sort of short side of the carpet, which obviously would take longer, um, can compromise the structure of the carpet um, and, and using less dyes. So these carpets were woven between 1664 and 1666, like a sort of trial run. And it seems that between 1666 and 1668, um, Lebrun and the various people involved in the making of these carpets regrouped, as it were, and try to see, okay, how can we improve the production and how can we make better carpets and then more ambitious and translate more ambitious designs. So it's an incredible chapter on so many different levels because, um, because design and technology went hand in hand. Um, and, and I think, and, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, many of these carpets were produced by, by orphans, uh, the the working conditions weren't happy ones, so I think we you know it is it is a kind of object that's sort of akin to the you know great Gothic cathedrals you know the product of a a perception of the world pre the Enlightenment when the individual didn't matter but the sort of cause or the the uh, the thing that you wanted to do. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So we've been speaking in broad terms about all 93 of these carpets, but of course the designs on each carpet are, are, are different. Um, mm -hmm. And now three of them are at the Metropolitan Museum. Uh, and I wonder if you could tell me a little through the lens of those three, which with which, of course, you're extremely familiar. Um, what are the design features that they have in common? And then what are some of the uh, different unique features that, that each carpet has? They all share the same black background. Um, that um, is usually adorned with large acanthus scrolls in, in different colors, blue, yellow, red, etc. Uh, it has a polyangular center, 
um, with a different colored background, pink, uh, you know, pale blue, yellow, um, in the center of which is often either a royal cipher or the French royal arms or trophies of arms. Um, and at each end uh, is either a bas-relief with an allegorical figure or a landscape. And the, the idea is that they were rolled out in alteration, a, a landscape carpet and a bas-relief carpet, the landscape carpet in front of the windows uh, and uh, the bas-relief carpets in front of the alternating bays. That's the, sort of the rough scheme. There are, there are um, some exceptions. So, so they follow the same pattern. And this is where the, the sort of genius of Lebrun comes in, because there's no, there's no visual precedent for that kind of carpet. They don't look at all like carpets from the Middle East anymore. You know, whereas the earlier production of the Savonnerie, which were really just arrangements of flowers, you could absolutely tell that they were looking at non-Western tradition. These are carpets that, um, for which he developed a completely new visual language. And it's such a stroke of genius to create this um, overall similar pattern, but to actually have a carpet that's always different. And this is really the sort of um, rhetoric tool of the Baroque, of the varietas, so, you know, variety. Every single carpet is different. You know, it's like thinking about Baroque music, is that, you know, you don't, you want to have a certain structure, but avoid repetitions and always bring in something something new. I want to to uh, pick up on this thread that uh, you've mentioned a, a couple of times now, this notion that the carpets were never used, they were never put to their original purpose, which seems really quite extraordinary given the scale of the project and the, and the uh, just unimaginable resources that the Crown was investing uh, in into it. Uh, it's, I mean, it's like, it's like building a new wing on your house and then deciding you're never going to set foot in it. Um, yes. What? <laughs> why, why? Why did that? What went wrong there? Well, we the, the the short answer is we don't know. There are there are few records relating to these carpets in the 17th century. Um, they were. Colbert was 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 clearly proud of the establishment of the manufactory as a royal manufactory and the fact that they produced these carpets um, and they gave them away as diplomatic gifts as early as 1669. I think that's when the first carpet was given away to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, um, who incidentally never used it. And um, the carpet that he was given, or the two carpets he were given, uh, he was given were rediscovered in the attics of the Pitti Palace in 1982 in absolutely mint conditions. Um, so that's that's rather wonderful, um, and and this is the sort of wonderful story of the afterlife of these of these carpets, um, which we which we can talk about in a minute. In the in the 17th century, there are little records of their usage and and or, or, or no records of their usage and little and therefore little records of people's. Um, appreciation or reaction to them. So um, we have one of the few instances where they're mentioned. It's the, um, I think it's the visit of either the ambassadors of Siam or the ambassadors of Persia. I would have to look it up again. And um, they are, they are, sh they are, they are shown the, um, the storage of the, of the French royal furniture collection, um, where also the 5,000 or so tapestries that Louis XIV had were kept uh, and they're shown le tapis du roi, the, the carpet of the king, and so very impressed. And, and and they are then also given to to take 
home with. Um, but it's not. Um, but there's no record of them ever being rolled out. And 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 I think, as as I mentioned earlier on, I think it's not only because the king lost interest in the Louvre and the and the gallery was never finished. The decoration of the gallery was never finished, uh, but also um, that using them at Versailles in the Hall of Mirrors would have led to competition between Lebrun's ceiling, which was his masterpiece, and the carpets that he he had woven. They would have been a real distraction because they are so bright, so colorful. And, you know, it may also be a, a change of, of taste. Um, I think it's very difficult to talk about taste and the development of taste. Um, but, um, you know, these are things that were designed they would have been at the height of fashion when they were designed in the in the 1660s. But, you know, 20 years later, design developed and, and taste developed. And it, it may just be that um, they fell out of favor in, in those terms, too. They were then used on occasions in um, in the 18th century. Both Louis XV and Louis XVI used these carpets as, as individual pieces in drawing rooms, just one carpet at a time, or for ambassadorial visits. Um, they were rolled out in the Hall of Mirrors. And there's a wonderful photograph of um, the carpets, I think 20 or so, being rolled out. And this is the last time that um, such last group was rolled out uh, in 1919 for the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. And there's this great photograph of three women working for the Mobile Nationale uh, sewing the carpets together so that the delegates of the of um, of of, of um, the 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 assembly for the Treaty of Versailles didn't trip over the carpets. It's an mm. unbelievably evocative um, photograph. Wow! And and then so in the in the eighteenth century, uh, yeah, Louis the Fourteenth, Louis the Sixteenth use them, and and then they start because they have so many of them, they start to use them. Um, they, they they start to be happy to um, cut them. So, for instance, there's one very important carpet, the first carpet of the series, which Louis XVI used in his dining room at Fontainebleau. Um, but they had to cut out a bit for for the fireplace, and uh, that bit was then replaced with a fragment from another Savonnerie carpet when the carpet was was sent to to Italy for Napoleon's use in. In Rome, and this is where the jigsaw puzzle starts, and um, the sort of afterlife of these carpets, which um, which also is quite an obsession of mine. Indeed, well, so I I want to get into that um, and how how these carpets sort of passed through time and space, and um, the in particular the three that are now at the Metropolitan Museum. Um, how did those arrive there? So all three carpets have their own interesting story and uh, I'm in the process of trying to retrace uh, the provenance even further than, than what we know. As you know, museums these days are more and more encouraged to really produce a complete provenance for all the works uh, in, in their collection, not only for the uh, problematic um, period between 33 and 45, but really for the sort of whole um, for the for for the whole life, as it were, of of the object. Um, so all three carpets. Um, so we, we've got two carpets that were acquired by the museum in the nineteen fifties, and a third carpet that was presented to the museum by Mrs. Reitzman in uh, nineteen seventy six. And I think she gave the museum all in all uh, four Savonnerie carpet, one from the Long Gallery, and um, then three Louis XIII carpets. 
So one of the carpets that the Met has is uh, is a carpet of which three versions were woven because the first version Louis XIV gave away to the ambassadors of Siam. And I'm still trying to figure out whether it's still in the Thai royal collection. We know that it was in the Thai royal collection in 1910 because back then uh, the administrators of the Thai royal collection got in touch with the movie national in Paris asking if they could repair it. But since then, it's been, the, the trace is somewhat lost. And then two more weavings were made because the same carpet was then given to the ambassadors of Persia. Um, we know that one carpet ended up uh, in Thailand, what is now Thailand. And the other two carpets, one is at the Met and the other one is at the Huntington Museum in Pasadena. So one of those two must have uh, been the, um, the one given to the ambassadors of Persia. But... Um, to retrace that story is is slightly complicated because both end up in in Europe and how they and whether they actually never whether they were given to the ambassadors of Persia and then never ended up in uh, in Persia or um, then somehow found their way back to Europe uh, is is a difficult one to to Indeed. retrace. What what is interesting is so we have 103 carpets made for the Grand Galerie, so including reweaves, 13 carpets for the Apollo Gallery. That adds up to 116 carpets, each of which has its own story. 40 are with the Movie Nationale, some of which had been um, sold after the revolution or reacquired. About 20 or so are in museums and private collections. Then there are fragments of these carpets that come up for sale relatively regularly. Uh, and I you know, make it my business to try and identify whether that fragment is from a particular carpet. And there are about 18 or so carpets that are completely unaccounted for, where we have no trace. We don't know what happened to them. Uh, the tricky bit is that the the carpets with the landscapes are always the difficult ones um, because they usually have um, don't have as specific an iconography as the one with bas reliefs, and so it's extremely difficult to then identify. I mean, there are some fragments with 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 landscape, but it's quasi impossible to say. Okay, that must be from that. Um, carpet. You know, whenever I look through a, a book that has photographs of historic interiors, the first thing I do is look at the floor. And I've come across so many uh, Savonry carpets where suddenly I said, oh, this is this carpet. Oh, clearly then it must have been in that collection in the 1950s or in 1910. Or So listeners, take note, there are more out there to be discovered. And should you keep your eyes open and come across one, uh, well, you know who to talk to. Indeed. Please let me know. Where so you mentioned that um, some twenty or so are in in museum collections. Of course, uh, you mentioned the two that are in the Reitzman galleries. Where else around the world can listeners go to see these? So, predominantly Britain and America, um, and that is part of the of the nineteenth century or late nineteenth century story of those carpets. Is uh, the taste, particularly of the Rothschilds and the Afrusis, for these carpets and for uh, anything that had to do with the Ancien Regime and furniture of, of Louis XIV, XV, and sixteenth, So there was a real taste for it in Britain and America for these carpets. So there are uh, uh, several carpets at Wadston Manor in Berkshire, um, the, the, the great Rothschild house. Um, there are some more in, in private collections in, in England, but that are open to the public. Um, and then there are... Um, three at the Met Metropolitan Museum, one in Philadelphia, two at the Huntington, 
and uh, and then also in some some uh, uh, private American collections, the Getty had um, the Getty when they built the new Getty Center had acquired one, and then it didn't fit the galleries; it was too big. Uh, because the design of the galleries changed, and so <laughs> they deaccessioned it again because they knew they couldn't put it on display. Right, right. Um, right. But it found a, a happy home. That's, that's um, respectable. But it's it's um, uh, and and you know and 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 sometimes I mean, for instance, what what is amazing to me is yes, you do occasionally, very rarely, occasionally come come across a carpet that you didn't know of. Usually, it's fragments. But I, I have once or twice come across a carpet I didn't know of. And one, for instance, there's one at um, Flores Castle in Scotland. Um, and there is an American connection there because the Duchess of Rogsborough, uh, who acquired the carpet, um, was a galette from Newport. And um, so there's a Newport connection there in the mm. same way that um, one of the carpets that is here at the Met, what belonged to the Duchess of Marlborough, uh, whose mother was a Vanderbilt, uh, also living at Newport. So there, there is this, there's this sort of interesting sort of three-way connection between France, Britain, and America, and the taste um, for these objects of the of the Ancien Régime. Uh, you, you won't find many Savonry carpets outside these these three countries. There are, as I mentioned, there are some in Italy, in Florence, and Naples. Um, there are none in Germany. Uh, not that I, I don't think there are any in Spain, but there may be still some in Spanish private collections, because as I said, you know, the ambassador of France to Spain had several Savonry carpets, Two, um, one ended up in uh, at the Met uh, via apparently Santiago de Compostela. Apparently, it was in the convent there, hmm. and another carpet was the was the Getty carpet that too came through through Spain. So there may be there may be some more in Spanish private collections. Last question uh, for those of us who uh, seek out these carpets and perhaps come across them in a in a museum collection uh, or elsewhere. What would you recommend that we pay attention to when we're looking at them? Well, um, I think what is what is helpful is when you look at one of those carpets is to um, to be aware of the fact that they they come in very different uh, states of preservation. So there are some in public collections that really. Uh, led a very rich life and you can see that so it's helpful to i think afterwards go online and look at pictures of of those that are better preserved the mobile national as i said they have all their carpets on their website and some of them are really beautifully preserved and really get a much stronger sense of of the very rich color scheme earlier we talked about you know different uh, how, how they were so different from uh, oriental rugs one, I think, key source of inspiration on the design of these carpets were um, marble floors, which um, Le Brun would have seen in Rome, and Pietra Dura tables and plaques that used these very, very colorful and bright stones and often had a black background, rather like the carpets have a black background, in front of which um, uh, all those colors, yellow, red, blue, can really pop. Um so, so I think it's important to bear in mind that often the, the carpets that we do see in public collections are the ones that, that led a rich life and therefore uh, of which the colors might be a little subdued. Uh, I think another, uh, another element to, to look out for is how the artists, the, 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 the weavers, managed to translate the cartoon into into the image that is quite three-dimensional. I mean, what's amazing about them is that um, 
that the the rendition of the of the acanthus leaves, the acanthus scrolls, of the animal masks, of the suns, of all the royal symbols is extremely three dimensional, and and to really appreciate the craftsmanship in translating these ambitious cartoons into carpets, and then the um, the the third thing is looking at the black background because the black background is so interesting in terms of the history of the dyes that they used. And, and we, we have to remember, you know, the, the dyes didn't come out of a bottle. These are all natural dyes that were, that um, were created um, in as scientific a manner that they could do at the time, but the end product um, could vary. And the black dye is, is a, clearly was a, a really difficult color to achieve. Um, because you you can see that there's a huge variation often within one carpet uh, between the black dry. So you can see streaks of of either brown or dark blue um, where where the the color has changed. And sometimes um, the mortar in the dye actually there was too much of it in the dye, and that actually eats up the thread. So sometimes the black background has vanished, or you can you can see that around the black area some of the thread is eaten up. That's because uh, that batch of dye had too much mortar in it and was gradually gradually ate up the thread. And that's true of black and some grays. So you will see that in these carpets sometimes there's a variation in the thickness of the pile. And this is something that you can really see with the naked eye without getting too close. Mm. Um, and and that is that is significant to the um, to uh, the dyes that were employed in the making of these carpets. Fantastic. Again, a much longer answer than what you were probably hoping for. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. The more detail, the better. And I, and I, I just love to have a few touchstones um, for you know, my own personal observations of these things. And that, and that goes uh, for people who have the chance to see these objects in uh, in their uh, local museums or on their trips. But also, uh, some of this is, of course, going to be visible in the images that um, that we'll provide or that you can find elsewhere on the internet um well thank you so much this has been a, a great pleasure and uh, i really appreciate your your time your insight and your expertise my pleasure this was great fun and um thank you for indulging me and letting me you know um babble about these these carpets that um i'm so very fond of i don't think anyone is going to begrudge you that indulgence <laughs> Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati with social media and web support from Sarah Bellata. Sierra Holt is our digital media and editorial associate. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller. <laughs>